This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. I received emails when we were on city, when I was on city council saying things like, I don't want those people with their pit bulls and their cigarettes and their music, their loud music living next to me. So you tell me, is there a racist undertone to that type of categorization of potential people living next door? I think so. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Microsoft. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today is a continuation of last week's episode with Joe Tovar about housing in Washington State. And I brought on our guest today, Jessica Bateman. She's a representative from the 22nd District in the state legislature. And she's going to talk us through the legislation that is pending in Washington State and why it's so essential and should be passed. So, Representative Bateman, welcome to the show. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Uh, my listeners may not know of you because they're mainly in the 27th and 29th, although they're also in the Philippines and Romania, I found out recently, which is awesome. Um, That's great. So what is the geographical footprint of your district? Yeah, so I get to represent the mighty 22nd Legislative District, which encompasses Olympia, Lacey, and Tumwater. Uh, this is my second year in office in the legislature, and prior to serving here, I served as an Olympia City Council person for five years and also as a planning commissioner for the city of Olympia for three years. Awesome. A planning commissioner. So you have expertise on this, unlike some folks in local governments. Uh, so <laughs> I- I'm wondering... Could you lay out what you view, what you understand as like your general philosophy of housing? Like what do you, like, what do you as somebody who's worked in planning, who's worked in local government, now state government, what is your view of like what the housing policy, uh, of, of what a good housing policy looks like? Sure. Well, I would say first that good housing policy is steeped in the experience of the people that we serve and thinking really holistically about what housing needs are in our communities. Having served on the planning commission and on city council, I'm well-versed with how we go about the planning process for our cities. Um, I think currently in the environment that we're in, we need to be thinking very proactively and be really understanding the urgency that we're in because so many of our our constituents are experiencing being cost burdened in how much they pay for their rent and also with how expensive home prices are. It's not sustainable. And the way that we have historically dealt with zoning and what that means is what can be built and where all happens at the local level. So your local city councils are the jurisdictions that make those decisions. We have hundreds of cities in Washington state and they're all doing their own decisions about what gets to be built and where, what type of housing, whether that's a duplex or a tiny house or a single family residential detached. And historically they've really 
they've set aside the majority of the residential land use area for just one type of housing. I think in 2022, we should be evolving to, and adapting to the needs of our state. We are a quarter of a million homes behind, according to the 2020 Up for Growth report. And the way that we zone as a state, I think should be, um, we should be thinking about it from a system-wide perspective. So how can we ensure that we're allowing for diverse housing choices across the state and not leaving that to individual cities to be making those decisions on an individual basis. That's really well said, and I agree with a lot of it. Uh, I almost want to take a moment and kind of work through the levels of government and see kind of what you think is the legitimate authority and how folks are doing and performing in that role. And so you kind of talked about what you view of the state's power, and that makes me nod my head a lot. And you talked a little bit about city government. We'll come back to that. Uh, I just wonder, can we talk a bit about the national government and their role in housing policy? Uh, sure. In my classroom, so here in Abu Dhabi, I teach uh, AP U.S. government politics, geography, and comparative politics. We're like literally doing our unit on federalism right now. Like we're starting it tomorrow. And something that I think about constantly is like that balance between the 10th Amendment and like the fact that there are powers that are basically if it's not in the Constitution listed to the federal government, it belongs to the states. Housing is nowhere in the Constitution, a state power, right? But at the same time, there's a federal role for housing for sure. And the federal government has the sole ability with the money printing device and all the federal agencies to create economies of scale to like shift housing policy on a large, large basis. Okay. Nerd, 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 nerd. Mm -hmm. With that said, I wonder, A, what do you think is the ideal role for the federal government housing policy? And then B, to what extent do you think they're being successful in doing that job well right now? Well, I think one area that we've seen the federal government really fail is our investment in subsidized housing and public housing. You know, we've seen that since Ronald Reagan with the divestment of public dollars for public housing and really kind of deferring that to the private sector. And there are critiques I think that we could make about um, historically what public housing has looked like in the United States. However, if you look at other countries, there are examples of beautiful community-based public housing that is something that each homeowner can be proud of and proud to live in. I think in terms of the scale of the need that we have, you know, in the quarter of a million homes that we have in Washington state, uh, 60 to 80% of those need to be affordable to low-income individuals, up to 80% AMI. And that if, will... If, I'm, if I may, really fast. So that 80% yeah. AMI is a... What does that number actually work out to nowadays? Oh, my goodness. You, <laughs> well, it, it, AMI is area median income. And I would have to look up what that is today. Um, maybe we could do that while we're on the show. Um, but what that means is, you know... Individuals like the, I think the ranges that we usually think about, most of the housing that we're looking at when it subsidizes 60 to 80% AMI. And so there's a vast um, absence of housing that's affordable to extremely low income people. And so when we think about the federal government, yes, they need to be investing more. And HUD, I think, has a much larger role to play in that. Um, We've also seen the Biden administration create incentives for cities to end exclusionary zoning. So connecting the federal dollars that they get to um, ending exclusionary zoning. I think it would be really difficult for the federal government to tell the whole country that you can no longer have um, only single family residential zoning. I, I mean, just with how big of a battle it is at the state level. Think about the politics of the country. And um, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but where we live and 
that personal connection that we have gets very, very personal for people. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we could see the federal government take on a, a very aggressive or strong role, but for sure with um, tying investments to cities and what the, the money that they get, I think that one of the challenges that we've experienced in Washington state, you know, in our growth management act, it says cities have to plan for future growth and they've had to do that for decades and we're not seeing that actually come to fruition and there's no accountability mechanism for actually holding cities accountable if they don't achieve those goals. We'll get back to cities in a moment. So two things, you said the term exclusionary zoning and that's a term that gets thrown around in conversations like in the super wonky, like online, like civics nerd sphere. That's a well uttered term, but like other folks listen to the show. So what's exclusionary zoning mean? Exclusionary zoning means when it's the zoning that only allows for single family residential homes. And so when you have a city like Seattle that reserves 70% of its residential land use area, which means areas where homes can be built to only single family residential homes, not allowing for duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, sixplexes, let alone apartments or ADUs, um, what that ends up doing when you have a median home price in Seattle of what eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, it excludes people that cannot afford a home for that price. You're excluding people. You're excluding the opportunities in those um, amenity-rich areas, sidewalks, schools, parks. You know, we know that. Um, So much of your life is determined by the zip code that you live in, the neighborhood that you live in, lifetime income earning potential, educational attainment, even health. You know, if you live in a neighborhood that you feel safe enough to walk on your sidewalks and go to a park and get cardiovascular activity, that's going to impact your overall long-term health outcomes. And I'm on the healthcare committee in the legislature, and I'm very, I also work during the day, my day job, I work for community health centers. So I'm very focused on the intersectionality of housing and health, but also housing is connected to so many other things. But that was the long, long answer to your question about what uh, exclusionary zoning is. Don't worry about long answers explaining okay. stuff. That's 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 our our trade. It's what we do here. Um, <laughs> I have one guy give a ten minute answer about marijuana policy, and Doug and I were like, I guess so. Whatever. Um, <laughs> another term you mentioned that I'm so. I've heard the Growth Management Act talked about. My guest last week helped write it, but I'll be honest, mm-hmm. I have not sat down with it and spent a lot of time with it. So what is the Growth Management Act and like, what is it trying to accomplish? Yeah, um, so for the civic nerds out there, I, I mean, I personally just love the Growth Management Act and I love the premise behind it. So in the early 90s, uh, policymakers and state lawmakers got together and they said, unmanaged growth, uncoordinated growth, unorganized growth of cities leads to disorganization and inefficient use of resources. So it makes sense for us to plan for how our cities are gonna grow over a time horizon of 20 years. So in advance of that growth, we're thinking about um, what do we want our cities to look like? What do we want our communities to be like in 20 years? And then it's kind of like a strategic plan for how you accommodate and how you achieve those goals. So cities go through a public planning process. I was an intern with the city of Olympia before I was a planning commissioner when they were starting to go through their last comprehensive plan process. Um, It can get pretty um, wonky (laughs) um, with city planners. I think public engagement is something that um, 
you know, communications experts can do a little bit better than the, the planning people. But at its basic level, it's just envisioning what we want our community to look like over the next mm-hmm. 20 years. And then that goes, it's passed and city councils then create policies to actually achieve those goals. So do you believe that the Growth Management Act has been successful in like tamping down sprawl in the state? I think that it's been successful in a lot of ways. I think that any policy, you know, we're not, we can only, we can't predict everything. We also have to adapt to the changing times, the new realities that we have. You know, in the early 90s, climate change was not the same. They knew about it and were aware of it, but it was not the same threat that we're feeling now with the reality of our our experience, breathing in the smoke from wildfires, seeing flooding and storm events. The housing crisis was nothing like it is today in the early 1990s. People in the legislature can get kind of defensive about opening up the GMA and making changes to it because there are folks that want to make changes, I would say, that go in the wrong direction and maybe increase sprawl, especially Mm -hmm. environmentalists. Uh, But in terms of us achieving our housing goals, I don't think that it was uh, super successful. So I started off by asking what you thought was the legitimate like role of the federal government in housing policy. And you mentioned uh, public housing and then also like money that's given to states and passed on to, to local municipalities. The other element where I think about federal involvement in housing has to do with like preventing discrimination in housing. housing. And I can't help but think about housing discrimination and then think about some of the local concerns that are being expressed about middle housing. And so if folks didn't listen to the last episode, can you just talk really fast about what middle housing is and what you're trying to do in the state legislature to provide more of it in the region? Yeah. So when you think about homes, a single family home is the home that most of us associate with like a residential neighborhood. One, I mean, just the name. And I I listened to that episode last week. It was really great. Um, I would argue that single family is a term that we shouldn't be using anymore because Mm -hmm. um, culturally, you know, um, a lot of folks live multi-generationally in a household. And I think that's great. And um, actually, the city of Olympia now calls their uh, that zoning low density <laughs> residential, which I think is much more appropriate. But when we think about that single that home that you would think of in a neighborhood um, to uh, apartments, middle housing is everything in between. So it could be a duplex, a row house, cottage housing, triplex, fourplex, or a tiny house. So it's everything in that middle range um, of types of housing for people. So I'll bring it back to discrimination in a moment, but what in particular is the legislature trying to do to increase the amount of middle housing that's available in Washington State? Yes. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to establish a floor of uh, different housing choices that are legal across the state. We're essentially trying to say to cities in my current bill, uh, within a half a mile of a major transit stop, which is defined as a bus stop every 15 minutes, you cannot ban up to a sixplex and you cannot create any minimum parking requirements. So within a half a mile, a person could build a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex, or up to a sixplex and cities can't make it illegal to build those things. And they can also not require a minimum parking requirement. Parking requirements actually create a significant cost that then get passed on to the person renting or buying. Also, we want to have people taking multimodal transportation, um, and that happens more close to transit than not. And in fact, multimodal transportation is predicated on density. And in addition to that, within a half a mile, uh, with cities that are 10,000 to 20 thousand, it would allow for the creation of up to a duplex on any 
um, single family residential lot that's currently zoned for that. And then with cities that are 20,000 and above, you would be allowed to build up to a fourplex. So it's not eliminating single family zoning. You could still build a single family home on any of those lots. What it's saying is it's lifting the bans that are in place in the vast majority of cities on these diverse uh, modest home choices. So we can have a modest upzone that is diffuse across the entire state. What we've seen is um, some cities do change their zoning. Usually they do it in specific geographic areas within the city. And when they do that, that one area then tries to absorb all of the growth in that area. And you see those prices increase significantly. And so what this is, is a, a statewide approach. Let's have this growth absorbed in a diffuse fashion across the state. And that's just the floor. Cities could then hopefully in larger cities and more urban metro cities like Tacoma, which is the third largest city in the state, um, actually create zoning that's higher than that if they want to, hopefully. Um, but this is just to establish a floor. California and Oregon have already made these changes or similar changes, making these state level changes um, versus local city and municipalities. Yeah. So, and that's a point I wanted to make. I'm glad you brought it up because so many people are responding to this policy like, oh, this is so unprecedented. It's so unreasonable. It's going to shift and dramatically change the landscape of housing in our region and community. We can't make this change. But like this change has already gone through in California and in Oregon and in Massachusetts. So if I may, before we go to break really fast, uh, what has been the result of this legislation or similar policies being passed along the West Coast? Well, in Oregon, they passed theirs, I believe, in 2019, and it just went into effect because there was a, a, a timeline um, imp of implementation. So we haven't seen the results of that yet. And California goes into effect, I believe, actually in January of this year. So we don't have data on um, what those achievements have actually been. And that's actually one of the arguments from the Association of Washington Cities is, Places that have actually done this haven't seen new housing creation, so we shouldn't do it because it doesn't actually work when they do do it. <laughs> and my argument is we haven't seen the long-term results of that, and we've never said that this policy is a silver bullet solution. I've got a whole other list of actions that we need to take um, to actually address this housing crisis. This is the first one, and I'm um, New Zealand is also another an entire country that has actually made these changes. I think we're going to see more and more cities making these changes as we all recognize the urgency that we're experiencing with the housing crisis that is not going to change for the foreseeable future unless we make changes like this. Here, here. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, uh, I want to talk through the various opposition this bill is facing. And then we can kind of talk through why all that opposition is trash. Okay. <laughs> so we'll be back. Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Microsoft. You may know Microsoft for the software on your desktop. But did you know that Microsoft is also committed to addressing the lack of affordable housing in our region? With rapid growth in the Puget Sound, Microsoft understands that our community needs to build more housing that is affordable for people who work here, particularly low- and middle-income households. Microsoft has helped to create or preserve more than 8,000 housing units by working with community partners like the Washington State Housing Finance Commission, the Evergreen Impact Housing Fund, and the King County Housing Authority. They have awarded grants to individual housing projects and provided financing to accelerate housing development. 
Together, these investments will deliver more low- and middle-income housing to our region and attract affordable housing opportunities in the future. Because everyone in our community, regardless of income level, should have a place they can afford to call home. To learn more about Microsoft's work in this area, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253. And we are back. I want to sincerely thank you for downloading this episode today. This is a conversation that we want to have and want you to hear about issues impacting not just the coma, but Washington State. And frankly, all across the country, we're seeing issues with housing. And so like this show and this conversation has reached beyond uh, the boundaries of My Fair City. Uh, this is a example of the conversation we have on Channel 253. Uh, Channel 253 is a network of podcasts who are telling stories, elevating points of view. And what we try to do is basically raise expert voices and activist voices and give them a platform in which they can be heard. If you like what we're doing, we ask that you consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Your will cost $4 a month or $40 a year. Uh, in addition to giving support to Channel 253, if you join, you get access to our member-only Slack. And I went through the Slack today and took some notes on some of the things that are happening. Uh, one, Kenny Coble, famous bookseller, is giving out personalized recommendations of all sorts of great book recs. Uh, also, <laughs> there's a one of the channels is called Stonks and Money, where we talk about cryptocurrency and meme stocks. And we're all basically licking our wounds after the last couple of days. Uh, and then there's a serious conversation going on right now about the harassment that happened to a black student at Capitol High. And so if you want to be plugged in those conversations, I ask you to think about becoming a member. Again, channel253.com slash membership. It's $4 a month or $40 a year. And we're back. Um, there's a, a, a thread in this conversation that I brought up earlier on I want to bring back up really fast. And what I want to kind of talk through is what is the opposition this legislation is getting? You mentioned the Association of Washington Cities. Is that the right thing with the group? Yes. Okay. Uh, this, to me, seems like a no-brainer. We have yeah. a situation in the state of Washington in which housing costs are escalating like crazy. We mm -hmm. know that like in the next 30 years, 1.5 million people are going to show up in the region. And so it's really strange to me that anybody would be like, oh, I don't know about building more housing. So like, can you talk me through, I, I think I understand the basis of their opposition, but it's so dumb and so bad. I think I'm not, I might not understand the whole thing. So just yeah. what is their basis of their opposition? Well, it's pretty simple. So the Association of Washington Cities is a trade association rep representing cities, both large and small, conservative um, and liberal, urban and rural. <clears throat> and so their primary objection to this legislation, and then they have a lot of different reasons, kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall to try to oppose it. But the, the real opposition that they have is they want to maintain local control at all costs. So this is the state taking something that they previously had or they currently have, which is their ability to zone themselves for residential. They want to maintain that. They don't want the state to create a floor. They don't want the state to lift these bans on modest home choices. They want to be able to do that themselves. And they have a lot of different um, examples and explanations why they think that um, they should be able to continue doing that. But I think that they're all just kind of excuses to maintain their primary concern, which is local control. So 
If I may just shove that ridiculous response to the side, we established at the start of the conversation that the Constitution says that all powers not delegated to the national government belong to the state. So the issue belongs to the state. And this is one of those examples, I, I feel like I'm just hitting this again and again every episode. The only powers that local governments have are the powers that are delegated to them by the state government. And so it's well within the state's authority to take this power back. And what's crazy to me is municipalities that basically allow middle housing just fighting against good statewide policy because they want to maintain local control. So like I, I ask you as a policymaker, like when you see a local government fighting against a policy they believe in for some procedural reason like this, like what does that make you think? It makes me think that they don't understand the urgency of the situation that we're in that is impacting hundreds of thousands of families across Washington state. Man, it's so stressful. Like, I, I, okay, this is the total aside, and this is not you talking, this is me talking. Like, this is not Representative Bateman at all. Far too often, local government functions in like the Joe Manchin function of politics, where they take progressive policy and good policy, and then they just basically make it worse in like the name of like being moderate and conciliatory. And in the end, they don't do anything meaningful. We've seen this happen with housing. We've seen this happen with law enforcement uh, reforms. And like, I just, like, it is baffling to me how a local government like the state of Tacoma can basically say, we support this housing policy, but we don't want the state to do it because we want to maintain local control when they have local control and don't want to think with the first. Okay. Let's, let's go back. Uh, you mentioned that Olympia and Thurston County, some of the municipalities have this in place already. Yes. So what was the process of getting it across the finish line like there? Well, um, the city of Olympia took a lot of different actions to address homelessness and housing. Mm -hmm. And how homelessness is connected to our scarcity of housing in Washington State. For sure. After after we took a number of actions to address homelessness, we also wanted to think holistically about the upstream challenge, which is more housing. So we went about trying to create um, different zoning to allow for more diverse housing options, duplexes, triplexes, et cetera. It took us four years, 44 public meetings, 1,200 pages of written comment, three public hearings. Um, the 1,200 pages of Written comment does not include the emails that we received as council members. And we ultimately did pass the legislation, the ordinance, and a group of wealthy homeowners hired a very expensive land use attorney who then challenged it at the Growth Management Hearings Board. They were successful and that um, invalidated the, the law. So then we had to go back to the drawing board. And fortunately, the state legislature had passed a different law that um, gave cities safe harbor from SEPA, State Environmental Protection Act appeals. And so we were able to pass it again. So it took us four years and all of that work, all of that public engagement in order to create zoning that would allow these diverse housing choices. And what I want to say is um, we know as a city in Olympia how much housing we would need to create over a 20-year horizon based on our mm -hmm. comprehensive plan and the numbers, which is 13,000 homes. And the zoning changes that we made would have created about a thousand. If every single property owner would take advantage of the change, which will not happen. So one thirteenth, and it took all of that time, effort and energy because of how controversial it was. 
And one of the arguments that I make when I talk about the reason why we need to address this at the state level is because not every city council is going to go through all that and end up making those decisions, which is in the best interest of our future and the best interest of equity and our community's well-being and health. And so that's that's the personal experience of Olympia. What is the cost of delay? So like, let's imagine a situation where we have the same thing happening at the state level and we kick the can down the road four years on building more housing and building more dense communities. What is the cost of that for our region? I mean, there's a whole bunch of costs. There's the cost to individuals that are rent burdened, cost burdened currently, um, families that are delaying like my little sister who's 26 and is a pediatric nurse and would love to have a child and start a family and can't find a home in the Puget Sound region close to home. So she's delaying um, starting her own family in that next chapter of her life. Um, building equity in homes, um, intergenerational wealth building, um, homelessness. If we were to pass this, this legislative session, we could get started on um, the policy changes that need to happen before the implementation. So we're ready to go. In addition to that, anytime you make these changes, you know, if this, as the bill is written right now, would be implemented in two years. So in two years, these bans would be lifted. But then you have to add another three years for actual the time that it takes to construct, get permits, go through all that. Sure. So we're looking at five years minimum today as it stands. We don't have time to wait on this. We're already so far behind that quarter of a million homes. Every year we fall further and further behind. And you've seen what that actually results in, which is median home prices going up significantly across the state of Washington. Homeownership for first-time homebuyers is only affordable in seven counties in Washington state. And they're all on the east side of the mountains. We know over the next 20 years, 80% of the growth in population that occurs in Washington state will happen in cities. Young people, millennials and younger, I don't even know what they're called now. Uh, they want to live near amenities within a quarter mile of you know, being able to go to their local restaurant, their local bar, go to the movies. That's where we're seeing the growth happen. And also, coincidentally, it's where we're seeing some of the places where such steep opposition to these changes. She didn't mean it, Gen Z kids. She didn't mean it, by the way. They're Gen Z kids. Okay, Gen Z, so yeah. I'm glad you mentioned stiff opposition because – I asked Joe about this and I mentioned it earlier on and talking about the role of the federal government. I can't help but feel like there's a racially – there's a racial resentment and a racially discriminatory element in some of the opposition. Uh, have you heard – have you heard that kind of – have you heard that manifest itself in the pushback to the legislation that you've uh, – they're proposing? Yeah. I haven't heard that pushback in – at the state legislature. Um, I can say, you know, having been a city council person, the comments from the public that we received um, and in emails, um, first, let me backtrack. I think people make assumptions about what multifamily is and they make Agreed. Um, stereotypes and mm-hmm. uh, assumptions. And I think there are racial under racist undertones to that. Also, um, you know, from my personal experience, I mean, I received emails when we were on city, when I was on city council saying things like, I don't want those people with their pit bulls and their cigarettes and their music, their loud music living next to me. So you tell me, is there a racist undertone to that type of categorization of potential people living next door? I think so. Um, I think that we all benefit when we have diverse communities. I think our entire community benefits when everyone has access to a, a stable and secure home. 
I think that we all benefit when people are healthy, when they're not afraid that they're going to be evicted because there could be a $200 a month rent increase. Mm -hmm. I think that we're all better off when we can have intergenerational families living together if, you know, that's what they want to do. You know, I think it's understandable for people to be defensive over their home and what their community looks like. I think that's a natural inherent thing that people experience. And as elected officials, both at the state level and at the local level, we're responsible for planning for future population growth and where those folks are going to live. We don't have a choice. That's my responsibility. I took an oath to do that. And we know that times are changing. When I look out and I see a state where it's unaffordable for the vast majority of my constituents to be able to purchase a home or even rent, that is not something that I'm willing to stand by and say, the current status quo is working because clearly it's not. And so we need to think, uh, we need to adapt and we need to change our practices to reflect the urgency. The response needs to be commensurate with the problem, the scale of problem. This is establishing a floor. It's a low, uh, it's a modest up zone across the state to ensure that we're going to have a diffuse um, population, that the, the, we can have a diffuse um absorption of our population growth across the state, just as a bare minimum. And like I said before, cities could also adapt and they could also have their own communities that have higher densities in certain areas. All of this seems so common sense to me. Uh, I imagine this is pretty popular in the legislature. So like how many co-sponsors do you have for this legislation? Well, I'll just first say that um, this has been a bill that's been brought forward for a number of years. Nicole Macri, Representative Macri, um, who is a housing justice hero, um, she's brought this forward, I think, since at least 2019. And then I have a co-sponsor. The bill is 1782 and also Senate Bill 5670 because it's got its governor request legislation, which sponsored it in the House, which is 1782. And then in the Senate, it's going to be it's sponsored by Senator Mona Doss, who's from Kent, who's also been a housing champion for years. And she sponsored similar legislation. Um, In the House, we actually got 28 co-sponsors, which represents half of the Democratic caucus. That's a watershed. Like, that's significant. We haven't seen that much support for this type of legislation. And I think what that reflects is my colleagues see the impact on their constituents near and far in communities all across the state. You know, that's representatives from Spokane all the way down to Vancouver, all the way up to Bellingham. So um, I think... Um, Joe said last week that it was 33% of the House, but it's half the Democratic caucus. So that's significant. Yeah. So I've, I, I have my head now around the wrongheaded reason that cities oppose the legislation. I'm, I'm wondering, and so I, despite all of my hot takes, I've still clung on to a few conservative listeners. Um, what is, so, so is there Republican support for the legislation? Let's start with that. Well, I do have a Republican co-sponsor in my bill, Representative Farkas, mm-hmm. uh, who's been very, very passionate about housing. And um, I think what you'll see is with Republicans, the mantra of local control really resonates with them ideologically. So some of them are going to be predisposed to supporting that um, argument. I do think we'll see more Republicans get on board, especially hopefully as this moves out of the local government committee and gets to the floor of the House. I'm looking forward to seeing some of my fellow Republicans vote in support of it. Well, and if I can, like remaining conservative listeners who've made it through all this, like, can I just lay out for you really fast that like you all have this belief in local control, but also 
these restrictions that cities are putting on individual homeowners and property owners are a violation of the property rights and individual liberty of those people. And so really, like, if you're considering yourself a libertarian or a small government person, like, the local governments in cities are telling people what they can't do with their property when in actuality, it, what if I... A property owner should not be forbidden from building a duplex if a duplex is reasonable in the community. And that's what many local governments are doing and for people to do that. So there's a libertarian argument for this. The government is artificially suppressing the supply of housing. And if I was mm. going to make the libertarian argument, I would say that um, with this law, you'd be able to change. You would be able to respond to the market demand for housing by creating and building the type of housing that you would like to. It removes that restriction and gives you the freedom to do that with your own personal property. Y'all hear that? She said freedom. We know y'all love freedom. Uh, if I can add one more element, I, I find that whenever we get in housing conversations, uh, folks who are of like the builder class constantly talk and chirp on about like how we need to build more housing, but there's too much regulation in the way. Like this is another example of removing the regulation you're always chirping about. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, speaking of, uh, I know it is not a part of this bill, but Sometimes those talking points that conservatives traffic in embed themselves into the discourse, whether they have like veracity or not. Can you walk me through briefly the role that like restriction? Why is it so difficult to build housing, period? Like besides the fact that like to build housing, you need $400,000 and land. Like why is it so difficult to build housing on the West Coast, period? I mean, did you listen to the Ezra Klein podcast about how blue cities are destroying housing? <laughs> I did, actually, yes. <laughs> um, well, you know, we have one thing that I think that we're guilty of is we add regulation upon regulation without considering the cumulative impact of what that does sure. and the barrier that that creates. And I also think that, you know, we have to change if we're if we're actually in a crisis, which hello, newsflash, we are, we should be acting with urgency. And when that, what that means is you have to adapt, you have to be nimble, you have to respond quickly, you have to actually act aggressively to address the situation that's before you. And when you're just like, mm, you know what, these eight different policy requirements that you have to like get through even to dig dirt, and then you have to spend $40,000 in impact fees and do a transportation impact study and, you know, all these different things, you know, you have to have bike racks and you have to do all this stuff. That, if I was a builder, you know, I could see I can, I, you know, I can understand that argument. Um, I think there's legitimacy in some of it. The biggest part that really resonates with me is we're in a housing crisis. We have to mm -hmm. act with urgency and we clearly are not doing that. I would argue that um, our, the structure of our like local government, the local government is not known for acting quickly. <laughs> it's, it's known for acting at the place, like a glacial plate, a pace. And in the legislature, we go a little bit faster, but because the land sure. use stuff happens at the local level, you know, we add those regulations, but at the local level, there's a ton, it, it goes very, very slowly. There's a couple things that I think, you know, permit timelines, um, I think it's 120 days that they have to turn around, cities are supposed to turn around a permit, and in the city of Seattle, they can take up to 18 months to a year. Um, I think that we need to be looking at that very seriously because if you're in the business of building housing, every day is more money. It's not consistent. It's not predictable. I signed on to Representative Marcus's bill that streamlines certain permitting for housing construction. I'm really excited. There's a lot of interest in this topic of how do we grease the wheels, remove barriers, and actually get construction going? I think that that's an argument for labor. These are you know jobs that have living wages. I also think that 
my Republican colleagues, it's a bipartisan issue and there's a lot of interest in us working together over the interim after this bill passes, 1782 and 5670, um, that we can actually then, you know, there's going to be an, a timeline before this actually is implemented and we have a whole bunch of work to do in between now and then impact fees, um, permitting, workforce, also materials for the construction. There's a lot of stuff that we have to work on in addition to this. I want to make a pitch for a one-page bill that requires municipalities to do the permitting process in like not 180 days. Like that seems like a very reasonable bill to me, but that's just me. Um, this is a time-sensitive conversation we're having right now. The bill is currently being heard in committee like this week, correct? We had a public hearing on it last Tuesday. We had mm -hmm. 548 people sign in in support. Only 29 people signed in opposed. Haters. Um, <laughs> um, it was, you know, um, a really great show of support and demonstrates how this is an issue that's impacting Washingtonians. Um, that bill was, my bill was scheduled for executive session this week, which is the next step where they actually have to vote to move it out of committee. And now that has been postponed. So what I'm urging people to do is contact the House Local Government Committee and urge them to pass House Bill 1782 out of committee onto the next phase of the process, which is then that it will go to appropriations. We have a cutoff next week. I believe it's Wednesday or Thursday, whereby um, there's it's a deadline that the, the policy needs to actually move forward. Every day in a short session is a day short. <laughs> so we need this bill to move very, very quickly. And I know that people... Um, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, but is the structural system for public engagement at the local level. And, um, you know, the, the people that come to city council meetings and do that public, like the 44 meetings that I talked about over, yeah. you know, four years, who has the time to go to 44 meetings over four years? Who's the most motivated to do that? Who's the uh, most boomers. likely to engage in that process? We know historically, if you look at the data, they tend to be whiter, older male property owners with the most investment in keeping things exactly the way they are. Young people, people working two jobs, people in speaking English as a second language, or people that might have a fear of institutional settings like a city council chamber, they're less likely to engage, let alone, I think that it takes a lot of political capital, time, energy, and money to go to 44 meetings over four years. I don't think that that system is infused with equity or inclusion for average working families and middle-income people, let alone low-income people, mobility issues, you know, like all those things. That's another reason why we need to address this at the state level. We have virtual hearings now. Um, we had, that's why we had so many people sign up to testify. Um, and I think that this is a great opportunity for us just to establish a floor, a modest upzone across the state, and then we can tackle all these other issues beyond this. Yeah. Uh, shouts to past show guest Derek Young, who testified in a personal capacity uh, against the wishes of local folks in the area. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to pin that you said just now. You said if people support the legislation, they should uh, reach out to the committee. So do you mean the committee chair? And if so, who's the committee chair? The chair of the local government committee is Representative Jerry Paulette. He's, uh, I believe he represents the 46th district, which is North Seattle. You can email him at jerry. That's with a G, Paulette at leg.wa.gov. Thank you so much. Uh, 
Reverend Bateman, you've been incredible. I thank you for making the time for this. If people uh, who have heard this are like, she's dope, I want to follow her and the work she does, uh, where can they look online? Well, you can go, um, you can email me. My email is jessica.bateman at leg.wa.gov. You can just Google search Jessica Bateman, Olympia, Washington, and you'll see my um, legislative page. You can also find me on Twitter at Jess D. Bateman. Um, that's my handle, I think is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I just started using Twitter, um, like actually um, seriously because of this particular bill. It's motivated me to really engage with people. Um, yeah, those are the areas I think that you could find me. And I'm always happy to talk about housing, how it's impacting you, um, you know, talking about this bill, things that we can do together to move forward. Um, very, very interested, passionate about this issue. Yeah, I want to thank you for advocating for this and also for taking the time to have this conversation and make it plain for the listeners. You made a very concrete case for this legislation against local government stupidity, frankly, and you told people how they can act. And so don't worry. I'm saying government stupid, local government stupid, not you. That's Those aren't your words. Don't worry. Don't worry. A lot of respect for – there are a lot of decisions that should be made at the local level. This just happens to be one that should – Here, here. All right. Well, kind of for y'all, make sure that you are boosted if you're eligible and available to. Uh, we want you to also make sure that we investigate and convict the police to kill Emmanuel Ellis and go Sounders. Thank you so much. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. We never want to get guest fired. <laughs> okay. It's another opportunity for you to blink, Nate. Here we go. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.